Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Normalizing breastfeeding is an ongoing battle in some Western cultures. Even when someone starts out breastfeeding, many report not being able to meet their goals or face various obstacles in trying to nurse their children. One part of the equation is how breastfeeding is represented in these cultures. Is it accessible through various media? How is it perceived? Joining me today to help answer this question and discuss the implications of it is Dr. B.J. Woodstein, author of the book, The Portrayal of Breastfeeding in Literature. Hopefully, by understanding the power of how breastfeeding is portrayed, we can move towards creating a culture where breastfeeding families feel supported and seen. I am so happy to have back with me today, Dr. B.J. Woodstein. She's an associate professor in literature and translation and also works as a Swedish to English translator, a doula, and a lactation consultant. Two of her most recent books are We're Here, A Practical Guide to Becoming an LGBTQ Plus Parent, which we've already spoken about before. So if you haven't heard that episode, please go check it out. And The Portrayal of Breastfeeding in Literature, which is the focus of today's discussion. She has also published hundreds of articles, personal essays, and book reviews. BJ lives in Eastern England with her wife and their two daughters. So thank you so much for coming back today. Thank (laughs) you for having me back. I loved our (laughs) chat last time so much. I'm glad to be back. It was so good. And I mean, we're really switching gears here, though, today. Because before we were talking about your book on LGBTQ plus parenting, today we're talking about your other Mm. book on how breastfeeding is portrayed in literature. And As I did before, I'm going to start with how on earth did you become interested in looking at breastfeeding in literature? Well, I suppose for a lot of my interests, and probably this is true for many people, um, it related to what was going on in my life at the time. So I had my first child who is now um, a little over eight, and I was breastfeeding her. And I was thinking, you know, as somebody who works in literature, oh, let's find some books that talk about breastfeeding. You know, some of the books I'd like to find are books that are for children so I could read to her and she could see family life like ours. And also I was thinking as you know, somebody who loves to read novels, oh, there must be some depictions of breastfeeding in literature. And I'd like to experience that. I'd like to read about how other people have felt about their breastfeeding journeys. Um, so that's why I started researching it. And I was, as you will not be surprised to hear, um, yeah, I, I really struggled to find books that had breastfeeding in literature. It's It really is amazing. I remember I did one piece a while ago, just on EP, about um, birth in media mm-hmm. and in TV shows and stuff. And it was shocking just how natural processes get portrayed. And I know we'll get into that in a little bit. So yeah. we'll, we'll go there. But yeah. <laughs> I want to start kind of as you do with the book, because I know when people hear this, one of the questions I know I got with with birth in the media, but the question of why, why on earth should we care about how breastfeeding is portrayed or even if it's portrayed more generally? So what is the impetus for people to actually see this as an important topic that we should be talking about? Oh, there are lots of reasons. I mean, one thing that's really important is that if you don't see something in the media, if you don't have a role model for it, it's hard to imagine 
that you can be it or do it. And so um, if you don't see breastfeeding in books or you don't see it portrayed mm -hmm. positively in books or in films mm -hmm. or TV shows or wherever it is you're looking, even newspaper articles, mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that it somehow could apply to your life. When I said to somebody just recently, oh, I you know, work on breastfeeding in literature, she thought for a minute, she said, there is no breastfeeding in literature. And then she said, oh, I read a description of breastfeeding once in a nonfiction book, and it was so negative, it made me think I'm never gonna have children, or if I do, I wouldn't breastfeed. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly the problem, because if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, so that's one issue. And another issue that's related to it is that people today get a lot of their information, the knowledge from newspaper articles, from the internet, from TV shows. And if we're giving them inaccurate information or no information, then what's going to happen to them? As you know, um, and you know, as you have written about and talked about in your podcast, uh, many people struggle with different aspects of parenting, including breastfeeding. And one of the reasons why they struggle is because they don't have the information and the support. And so my view is that if we had good depictions you know, full, complete depictions of breastfeeding in the media that would really help people on their breastfeeding journeys. Which is so true, because it's like you said, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But also if what you see, kind of like that one lady you mentioned, if what you see is so negative, then it's you definitely it's not even you can't be it. You don't want to be it. You mm -hmm. are kind of moving away from it. And in this, I mean, one of the topics you talk about, and I think it's really important to kind of address is the sexualization of mm. breasts and in literature, and, and I know we'll get to the breastfeeding part, but how, let me backtrack here. I don't think there's a person who would argue that breasts have been sexualized in literature, in media, more generally across mm. the board. Um, if someone does think that that's not the case, then we might need to have a whole other discussion on it. So we're <laughs> yeah. going to take that at face value as just a gift right now. Mm. How can we, reconcile or think about breastfeeding in literature when the common perception in, in literature and media of breasts is this sexualized view? Like, can they be compatible in, in the literature or, or does one almost inherently negate the other? I think we believe they negate one another, but they don't have to. I mean, one of the things that, um, I've noticed is that people will say to me, oh, my husband doesn't want me to breastfeed because he loves to play with my breasts and he doesn't want somebody else to have them. Or, oh no, you know, my breasts are sexy. They can't feed a baby, that's just gross. Or if a baby sucks on me, that's disgusting. So many of us seem to have really absorbed that view of breasts being only sexual. And you see breasts used all the time in advertisements. You know, some woman will be skimpily clad selling hamburgers or beer or even computers, you know, something like that. Um, and so we immediately associate breasts with sex objects. But what's interesting to me um, is that there are some cultures in the world that don't involve uh, breasts in sexual play whatsoever. You know, to us, we think, oh, breast sexual, maybe a bit of foreplay or whatever. Um, but there are cultures where they don't even really touch the breasts, kiss the breasts. They're not viewed in that way. They're viewed as, you know, for their original purpose, for our evolutionary purpose, you know, to feed babies. Um, so in our culture, we sexualize them. But the clear point is, is that they can be both things. I mean, if you think about our lips, 
So what do we do with our mouths? You know, we, we eat our food, we drink our drinks, but we also kiss one another. We use our tongues on one another. We put our lips on other people's bodies, including their genitals. Um, and we don't seem to have a conflict there with, oh, you can't eat your meal because you've also given somebody, you know, cunnilingus or a blowjob or something. We don't, we, we don't have that issue with them, but for some reason we don't seem able to separate that with breasts. And I would really like to see that changed in our society. They can be sexy, but they are also there to feed babies, if that's what you choose to do with them. I do wonder if some of it also comes, I just know as someone who breastfed for a very long time, also the self view of don't touch them. I'm touched out now. You know yes. what I mean? You get that kind of period yeah, of time, absolutely. but it passes, it goes. It's just it's there and it's very real for a lot of people to be like, I am actually removing them as sexual things because they're cracked, they're sore, they're, mm. you know, everything else going on. My kid learned to bite and chomp down and, <laughs> you know, the things oh, that no. we go through with it. Yeah. it yes. Imagine that as also being part of this, this Absolutely. play into the, the lack of or the, or the dichotomy between the sexualization and, and breastfeeding. But as um, you said, that changes, you know, so we can feel yeah. that way, just like we can also feel like, oh, actually, my sex drive has changed now. And if you have a partner or multiple partners, you just have to say very honestly, actually, I don't feel like having them touched right now, or I don't feel like engaging in certain mm -hmm. sexual activities right now. And you know that that will change. It's hard to feel that it'll change when you're in it, but it does change. Your hormones change. Exactly. And so, okay, so we know that it's important because social learning is one of the things. Mm. We know, it, I think it also, I'll be honest, just I, the reason I brought up the sexualization at first is there's the view, but I think an honest portrayal can help counter that whole sexualization yes. of breasts. I think that the more it does appear in literature and everything in ways that they evolutionarily are, are intended to be used, which doesn't mean they have to be used that way or can't be used in other ways, but that that is actually, you know, I use my feet for walking. I can also use them <laughs> for other things. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so similarly, I do feel that it's important to see that to counter a narrative that I think a lot of people do want to see shifted female bodies just mm -hmm. as sexual objects as something. And this is kind of one of the ways to go that. Um, do. To go that it's route. really empowering, isn't it? To say, okay, you know, people see my body only as a sexual object, but actually I'm going to use it to grow a baby, to birth a baby, to nourish and feed a baby. And that feels amazing. I mean, personally, you know, as somebody who also has been breastfeeding, you know, for a long time, and I'm still breastfeeding now, um, you know, I feel like it's one of the achievements in my life that I'm proudest of, that I have managed through so many different breastfeeding issues to continue to breastfeed and to nourish my children. Um, to me, that feels like a huge thing, given the lack of support there is in our society for it. Absolutely. And I felt the same. I mean, I'm, I'm no longer breastfeeding, but mm -hmm. I mean, it was a good 11 years of my life <laughs> yeah. and it, you know, it felt really good to be able to accomplish that. And I was very lucky because, and again, this social learning element and why I find this so fascinating is that I have said before in other episodes, and I will remind people again, I was incredibly lucky to have grown up seeing breastfeeding around me in, in my neighborhood as part of people, but especially my mom, mm. because my mom breastfed all of us. We are 
very spread apart. So, you know, I was eight when my brother was born and I was um, 14 when my sister, four, I was 14. Oh my God. Um, with my sister, <laughs> we were that far apart. So I, and she breastfed all of us until we self-weaned. So we all mm -hmm. kind of stopped between the ages of three and four. So it was very, I saw it. And so in turn, when I got pregnant with my now daughter, um, it, just that's kind of what I had in my mind that I was going to do. It didn't even occur to me that something else would even be in the cards. And and I remember how weird it was because people would be like, well, how long are you going to breastfeed for? And I'll be like, well, I don't know. It's as, as long as they go. I don't, I, I don't know. And the looks you get are really weird because again, it's not seen. So when so many people don't have it seen, the media becomes our way of being able to navigate these issues that may not be present in our, our daily lives. No, absolutely. I didn't have the luck of seeing it in my life. I mean, it was only, I think, after I had my first child that I found out that my mother had breastfed me because it was nothing that we'd ever talked about. And so when I went for that, you know, midwife appointment where they kind of go, oh, have you thought about how you're going to feed the baby? I sort of went, oh, yeah, um, well, I'll give breastfeeding a try. But, you know, if it doesn't work, whatever, you know, because I had all those um media messages in my head of the well, formula is just as good and I didn't see anybody do it I didn't know about it and I was shocked to realize quite quickly how much it mattered to me and how important it was for my relationship with my daughter and I think that's one reason why it is so essential to me that we talk about the portrayal of breastfeeding in the media because other people have said well, I, I wanted to do it, but I had no support. I didn't know anything about it. There was nobody talking to me about it or people have given up and then felt horrible about it and had real sort of guilt. And even we could use the word trauma about the fact that they stopped before they wanted to or never even got started. And I don't want that to happen to people. There was a really interesting study by um, Professor Amy Brown at Swansea University where um, you know she found that there are people there, there were women who had mm. wanted to breastfeed, tried to breastfeed and gave up before they wanted to. And they were still feeling sad about it in some cases, 70 years later, or, you know, it was real. they were old women at that stage still thinking about it. And I don't want that to happen to people. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, I had Amy on to talk about her book, Breastfeeding, yeah. Grief and Trauma. Yeah. And it is, it's an amazing, if you have that, if you have any feelings around that, I strongly suggest listening to that back episode because it was such a wonderful discussion and her work on this is so important and needed because it can be validating for people to realize it's normal to feel that way after it happens and it's okay and you're not alone with it either is one no, of those things. No, so, so many people feel that way. Yeah. It's true. Okay, so let's get to... The findings here, which won't be too shocking, but there are some that are a little <laughs> shocking, actually. But I, I love how I should preface this that the book is really broken into both children's literature and adult, and, and I guess combined with young, like young adult, adult mm. literature combined together. Um, and so we're going to separate out the discussion. And then also you do a comparison. It's not just English literature, it's Swedish literature as well yes. that you're comparing to. So, um, Let's start with the English children lit. Okay. Yeah, so what can you tell us about what you found? What are we seeing about breastfeeding in young kids' books in English? Ah, uh, well, yes, as you said, this is not going to be a surprise at all, but um, we see a lot of bottles in picture books. 
And, you know, on the one hand, when I've mentioned that to people, they've often responded, yeah, but lots of people formula feed. So we need to see that in books because formula feeding families want to see their um, their lives depicted. And I completely understand that. And actually, I should say that in some cases, there's a bottle, but you don't know what's in it. It could be formula. It could be expressed breast milk. It could be donor milk. It could be um, it could be juice or water for all you know. You know, there are all sorts of possibilities, but there are a lot of bottles in pictures. And um, I think that I probably naively had hoped that there would be a bit more breastfeeding. One of the things that I found interesting in the books that I looked at is that the books that are most likely to feature breastfeeding in the pictures and the words are actually translations to English. Um, so it's clear that we are missing something in English. If you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a translator myself. I'm a huge fan of translated literature. I translate books, including books for children. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't translate literature. But what I am saying is that when we are translating books on a certain topic, it shows that we have a gap in our own culture. And so the gap here is books originally written in English that feature breastfeeding, whereas we see it more we're more likely to see it in, for example, Spanish language books and also the Swedish, but we'll talk about the Swedish in a moment. Um, so yeah, I found a lot of bottles. In some cases, I was really surprised because the bottles themselves were depicted as huge, sometimes the same size as the baby. So I remember reading this and thinking, it sounds like something I would do, and I'm not an artist. I don't draw things very well. My sense of proportion is awful, but that sounded like someone hired me to do a drawing, and no one would ever hire me to do a drawing. So, yeah, they're just, I mean, it's funny. It's almost like in some cases, the babies are sort of propped up there with this massive human sized bottle. Um, and that's really dangerous, actually. So it's sending this message that it's okay to leave a baby alone with a bottle, which it absolutely isn't. There are cases of you know babies who are uh, choked or you know, even fatalities because um, they're left alone with a bottle. So that's a bit worrying. Another thing that I noticed from the images is that um, they, when you see breastfeeding depicted, you don't see the breast. So in some cases, it, you really have to be looking, is this actually breastfeeding or is this just a baby cuddled against the chest? You know, it's very discreet. You might see um, something where you think is that might be breastfeeding, but then there's kind of a cardigan or, or a sweater or something that's kind of covering up much of the breast. There are very few books where I actually saw any areola. Um, and as we know, if you have a good sort of latch, you will see some areola. Um, so yeah, I found that um, the images were not giving good messages about breastfeeding. And another thing that I would say is that a lot of books and the words, so again, these are kind of picture books, would emphasize that, oh, you know, some babies are fed by breast, some by bottle. So there was this um, inclination to normalize both or to say that both were equal choices. And I'm glad that, you know, formula exists. There are definitely some children who need formula. I'm not against it in any way, but what I would love to see is kind of a prioritization of breastfeeding. So I would like to see more breastfeeding. I would like to see more positivity around breastfeeding as sort of the first choice where possible for babies. Um, so again, you know, none of that will really surprise you, Tracy, but that was pretty much what I found in the picture books. And there aren't that many picture books, you know, I really had to struggle to find these books. 
And, and this is where I think one of the things that you mentioned that in the book that really got me was, like you said, it seems like the language about it was very neutral, right? So there's no real language. But I thought that the distinction between what was written and the visuals, really interesting, that it seemed like they are willing to talk about, oh, babies are fed by breasts, breastfeeding, you know, happens. But showing it was like that taboo that we don't do, which, as you said, the babies are covered up. There's more pictures of bottles. It's, And I feel like that, again, goes to that sexualization piece of that somehow showing it, especially with babies or for children, is wrong, yeah. I, you know, as it goes. And how do you think, I mean, what... I, I don't even know if you have an answer for it, but what is driving, do you think it is just the sexualization piece that's driving it? Or is there something else about presenting it? Like, do you think that these people that are drawing it didn't experience it? They don't, you know what I mean? Like, is yes, that part yeah. of it? I think that's definitely could be part of it that people don't know how to even depict a baby breastfeeding. You know, it says babies are fed by breast. Okay, well, I'll show some woman cuddling a baby. And by the way, just as a side note, which we'll probably come back to, when I say woman, that is really all you see, you know, feeding a baby, whether by breast or by bottle, you rarely see a male feeding um, a, a child and certainly never a male uh, chest feeding. But, um, but yeah, I think it's partially this kind of sense of we don't know um, how to draw it. We also think uh, people don't want to see it. Um, one thing that I like to do with my students is, um, uh, well, I was going to say I like to try to shock them, but I like to try to encourage them into discussions about uh, literature, its purpose, and the different kinds of books. And so I read to them a lot in class. And one of the books I love to read to them is a translation from Japanese to English called What Does Baby Want? And it's by Tupra Tupra, which is actually the name of a design studio in Japan. I think it's a husband and wife team. And this book is a, a board book, so it's, and it's round, which is really unusual for children's literature. It's a round shape, and the, it's a very simple book. And it's what does baby want? She has a crying baby. You know, does the baby want their ball? You know, so ball, nice round shape. Does the baby want the tambourine? Nice round shape. Um, you know, what does baby want? How can we help this little crying baby? And then you won't um, be shocked to hear, Tracy, that the to find this kind of centerfold is a pair of breasts and you see it straight on. Ah, that's what baby wants. Baby wants to be breastfed. And you see the breasts and you see the areolas and see the nipples. And as soon as I show that page, when I'm reading aloud to my students, there's always an audible gasp. Oh, how? And the students say to me, you can't show that in a book for children. Children can't see nipples. That is, that is my students view. So year after year. And I say, do you have nipples? Did you have nipples when you were a child? Did you see your own nipples? Did you ever have a shower or a bath with a parent or a sibling or a friend? Did you ever change, in, you know, for swimming or, or PE with a friend? You know, did you see other people's nipples? They always go, well, yes. So why is there something wrong about seeing nipples? A breastfed baby or a chest-fed baby will absolutely be seeing nipples. They will be seeing breasts. And my students always sort of think about it and some will still really stick with the line of that is not acceptable. But some of them will kind of change their minds. And I think that kind of gets to the heart of it is that we feel that women's breasts in particular are so sexualized. They are nude, sexy. We can't see them. 
And I think that's why we see so little accuracy in the depictions of breastfeeding in literature. It was funny, as soon as you went round and what does baby want, my brain went straight to, you're going to get a, a full spread of two boobs out there and that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the hats when I had two for breastfeeding in public, the little toque that's made oh, like a boob, yes, you know, that yeah. goes up. It's, yeah, oh, exactly. Are so cute. Yeah. They are, they're adorable. Um, but, you know, it's funny, I, I, a topic for another day, but I do want to ask at some point here, like, how do they keep justifying it? This, it's inappropriate. Like, I know people can dig in on an emotional level. But if you challenge it, okay, so why? Mm. Why? Do they have answers outside of... It's always, um, yeah, that breasts are for sex. That is what the students will literally sit there and say that to me. Okay, and then I have to say, so why are we called mammals? What, <laughs> what, what, are, what are mammary glands? And there's all this thinking. And they finally we'll kind of get to a point well yeah okay yes we did evolve to breastfeed but does anybody really need to breastfeed today you know because often they have no knowledge about what are the disadvantages of formula feeding you know nobody has talked to them about that and of course you know i teach literature so you somebody might challenge me and say well is this an appropriate discussion for the classroom but my feeling is you know if it's about how we're raising children and what children are learning from literature and from society more generally than it's appropriate discussion. And this is completely a side point, but I think you'll find it interesting is that another topic that comes up every single year is the use of physical violence in child rearing. And my students will defend hitting, spanking, slapping, even kicking children. And often I found that it is because those are their own experiences and it's very difficult for them to, um, you know, to talk about that or to, to challenge what their parents did or, you know, to fit, they'll sit there and say, oh, well, I was, you know, spanked whenever I was naughty and nothing bad ever came of that. I haven't been, you know, mentally injured by it. And, you know, so we, I do like to have those discussions and try to get them to a point of thinking, well, maybe you would do differently if you had children. What makes that a good method of child rearing? So that is why I like to have these kind of broader discussions. What do we see in literature? You know, do we see people hitting children in literature? Yes, we do. Why do we see that? Is that something we should be seeing? How could we talk about that in literature? And the same is true for breastfeeding in literature. What are we saying? Um, so I just find it a really interesting discussion. And I have actually found that by the end of some of these discussions, some of my students have come up to me and said, you know, I have thought that now that I've talked to you, if I ever had a child, I would like to give breastfeeding a go. Or if I had a partner, I might encourage my partner to give breastfeeding a go. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always really touched by that, that, um, you know, having these kind of intellectual discussions might actually change people's minds. This, I mean, that's amazing. I'm also not surprised by the corporal punishment that is, mm -hmm. and that's a bit harder, I think, because as you said, if it's been your own experience to go back and both challenge your parents on it, but challenge also the idea of maybe I'm not okay. Maybe something yes. happened that, it, you know, that's really hard to do. But mm -hmm. I do think like university is the time to, I think even younger, I think high school is the time to really be having some of these discussions and introducing these concepts because those are the formative years where we're thinking about this stuff. So again, why in literature? Because that's what kids consume. They consume yeah. media, however they do it. And the representation has got to be there. So, okay. So we're just to keep us somewhat on track because we can go <laughs> off on all of these conversations yeah. here. Um, so 
you did the same examination. So we have an English lit books, just to summarize, um, discussion of breastfeeding, but very neutral, not a lot of positive, but pictures are overwhelmingly bottle feeding or very Ooh. murky. Is it really breastfeeding images? Yes. And let's just add the safety bit here of images are actually advocating incredibly unsafe behaviors with bottles yeah. that are not realistic. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, now we get to Sweden. Because you did, again, as I mentioned, this comparison. And I'm first just going to let you mention, you've mentioned you've done Swedish translation. So is that the reason for the choice of Sweden was? Yes. So I, um, before I moved to the UK where I live now, I lived in Sweden for a number of years. I moved there without knowing a word of Swedish, um, which was a slightly strange choice, perhaps. But anyway, different story for a different day. And um, I learned Swedish and found that I kind of fell in love with the Swedish language and with Swedish literature. And I started working as a translator. And also one of the big things that happened to me when I was learning Swedish is that I wanted to get to know um, kind of Swedish culture better. And so I started reading a lot of children's books. And I very quickly realized that Swedish language children's books are quite different from what I grew up reading in the United States, different from what I was used to from English language literature more generally, including sort of, you know, British, Canadian, Australian children's lit. Um, and I thought, well, this is fascinating. Why? And so I've, in my career, I've done quite a lot of comparative work. You know, also, this is also true of LGBTQ um, children's literature. It's different in the UK and the US versus in Scandinavia. I can also read uh, Danish and Norwegian. So I did in fact go to Norway and research um, breastfeeding in Norwegian language children's books in particular, but I didn't have enough to feel that I could put a whole comparison into this book. Um, so that's why I only kept it to Swedish. And I love the use of Swedish too, because although it is, as you kind of just alluded to, a very different culture, it's still a Western industrialized culture, right? So we yes. are, we're not talking about getting too far away from what we know. Many of us in Western cultures will feel like the Swedes are similar enough to us here to, to have this discussion. So with that, what happens in Sweden? <laughs> well, again, I, I, I feel bad because I feel like I wish I had something really surprising to tell you, <laughs> but, uh, you know, really exciting. But in fact, um, I think a lot of people will probably have the sense that Scandinavia generally has higher breastfeeding rates than we do in English speaking countries. And I think because of those higher breastfeeding rates, you're much more likely to see breastfeeding in literature in Swedish, in children's literature. I found lots and lots of breastfeeding and um, it was often much more positive. It was often um, where the breast was more visible. You saw more of the areola, a better latch, uh, which for me as a lactation consultant was also pleasing. You know, they didn't see some baby hanging off the end of the nipple or something, but it was actually, you know, latched on well. Um, and it was just very normalized. And I think that's where I'd like us to get to in English, that it's just normalized. It's just part of everyday life. Um, and it was nothing shocking or surprising. Um, so we, I did sometimes read depictions of, oh, sorry, read in the words, descriptions of, oh, you know, breast or bottle, or let's give some formula or whatever. But really, I found lots and lots of depictions of breastfeeding. Um, and so you know, the percentage was much higher than in English. Another thing to say about Swedish is that I saw uh, co-sleeping, I saw tandem feeding, 
I saw um, baby wearing. So there was a lot more of that, whereas in English, it is so difficult to find. And the thing about that that I would say is that in English, um, when you are looking for, for example, say, um, co-sleeping or baby wearing, you're looking for a very specialist book. You have to look for a book that is specifically about breastfeeding. That is the topic of the book, breastfeeding, you know, whereas in Swedish, it's just, oh, this is a book about parenting, you know, or it's a book about family life. And oh, look, there's a baby in a sling. It's not the subject matter of it. And I think that's the way we do topics best in children's literature in particular. It's just part of it. It's nothing that you have to bring up. Okay, now we're going to talk about baby wearing. It's just, oh, yeah, we're putting the baby in a sling now. And that reminds me of uh, the one book, like you say, it's so rare. I always say to families when they're expecting another is I always recommend the biggest bed in the world. Oh, yes. And yeah. but it's like you have to actively go out to be like, no, 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 that's the one book. Yes, that you can yeah. play, right. And it's because it's not so prevalent. But I was interested. One of the, the stats in your book was that and I just want to clarify that I am getting this right. In Sweden, there were no references exclusively to bottle feeding only. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I have to sort of. There was mixed, like no, they talked about both. Yeah, so there's combi feeding. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist because I haven't read every single book. But in the books that I was able to access, you know, that um, are that were available, you know, the main libraries in Stockholm or online or that I could purchase, I could not find any that was solely formula feeding. I found, uh, I certainly found combi feeding, but also lots of breastfeeding. Yeah. And part of this, I want to, I, I think interesting, because we talk about cultural differences. You mentioned the dis distinction between the terms naked and nude. And I do know my just my little bit of knowledge about Scandinavian culture, which isn't vast at all. But I do know there is way less taboo about seeing people naked, right? Yes. Or yeah. nude or whichever the term is supposed to be. You're going to have to correct me on which is which, because to me, they're both like there, there just isn't that taboo. It's something mm -hmm. that the human body is the human body. And you think about the saunas that they mm -hmm. use regularly. And so can you talk about how that distinction plays into how we're representing breastfeeding in yeah. these two cultures? No, I mean, it's exactly what you said about, you know, for example, people going to the saunas and you're just, you know, friends, relatives, you know, people have got saunas in their houses or they go with people from work or, you know, just friends for an afternoon out. And so it is more common to go and just get naked with other people, which really, truly, you know, as somebody who grew up in America did um, stun me when I first moved to Sweden. And when somebody first asked me to go to the sauna with them, I thought, well, I'll bring my swimsuit. And when I got there with my swimsuit, they were going, uh, you don't wear a swimsuit in the sauna. I thought, what? Okay, and I'm like sitting there, you know, very prudishly holding my towel around myself the whole time. You have to get used to it. It's a very different culture. So yeah, definitely, um, people are more comfortable with nudity. Another thing that was um, that's always um, different or surprised me, I guess, about Scandinavians that people will change into their swimsuits on the beach. I mean, they'll put a little towel around themselves, but they don't mind if it sort of, you know, flashes a bit of bottom or anything like that. Um, so you know, it's it's just like, oh yeah, you know, it's the human body. And so I think that's what played into the children's books. It's yes, you know, we see breasts when we're breastfeeding, it's the human body. What I would say is one thing um, that we have in common 
is discomfort with genitals. So in children's books from Scandinavia, I've definitely seen penises. Um, and, you know, so you see little boys taking off their underpants and running around naked, whereas it is very difficult to find a little girl doing the same. And I think that we're, you know, this is a common thing for Western culture is that we're really uncomfortable with naked females, even naked little girls. And so that that's a topic for another time, perhaps, um, but something that we all have in common. Well, I mean, it hopefully isn't too surprising given how much we've sexualized females that we can't seem, it's like inherently you have to sexualize a young child if you're going to allow them to be naked. And it's, uh, so I think that really that's what it comes down to mm. is that if we have the sexualization of the female body, even if it's less so that, you know, there is, it's clearly still part of it in Sweden there with the yes. genitalia. That is what I would think would be the case. Cause I remember seeing in Vancouver um, when I lived there, we have the public beaches and public swimming and there was a family visiting from France and the daughter must've been, I don't know, nine or so. And she only put on the bottoms, right? Mm -hmm. She only had the little bathing suit bottoms and was trying to go topless. And it was a bit of a kerfuffle with the people there. Oh. They're like, no, she has to wear a top. And they were like, but she does what is going on? Eventually yeah. they, they go it was she she went topless and it was fine but it was I remember sitting there watching this discussion being like this is fine what's the she's a child like yeah. what problem and you know we see yeah we see a female we automatically think nude and sexy even if it's a little child which is very worrying um, and something that, again, you know, we really need to change society. And that's one reason why I care so much about children's literature, because I feel like if we changed things and our depictions of them in children's literature, that will eventually kind of work its way up the generations. As those children get older, you know, they'll sit there and they will challenge, well, why are you telling me I have to do things this way or I can't breastfeed in public or I can't do this? You know, that's not acceptable. Um, and so to me, that's very important. I agree. But on that, I want to move to the adult literature because yes. there's a lot of themes that emerge in this. And oh, it's yeah. obviously like with children, it is more simplistic. Often these are just kind of demonstrating what babies do. You're not getting into a sociocultural no. discussion surrounding it all, which happens in the adult literature, as you kind of highlight, because it's not just about it being portrayed as an act but about the emotional implications, the struggles people have, um, you know, all of that comes together in this. So let's start in the English literature again. Let's just start with how much is it portrayed and how positively is it portrayed? Right, so I want to preface this by saying that um, I'm very aware that people do struggle with breastfeeding, not everybody. Um, and of course, as we've already said, you know, reasons why people breast, um, struggle with breastfeeding include lack of information, lack of support, so on. Um, so, so I think that for literature to be fully accurate in its depiction of breastfeeding, we have to show some of those struggles. So we have to show, we should show somebody with mastitis or somebody, you know, um, oh, I can't get the latch right, or somebody with a baby with tongue tie, you know, that would be a nice complete picture what we struggle with in English, I think, is that the depictions are almost solely negative. First of all, it's very hard to find any depictions at all. 
Um, you know, I really, I had to reach out to lots of people. Do you remember ever reading about breastfeeding in a novel and people would sometimes go, well, I'm sure I saw one somewhere maybe. And, you know, so I managed to get a list together. Also, you know, I've read widely. So thinking about my own reading, um, and there were a few authors who kind of came up quite regularly in their depictions of breastfeeding. Um, but so it was very difficult to find. And when I did find it, it was almost overwhelmingly really negative, you know, where people were saying, oh, breastfeeding is always painful. Breastfeeding is always difficult. Breastfeeding interferes with my relationship with my partner. Um, you know, breastfeeding is disgusting. Breastfeeding is gross. You know, so there were these kind of um, tropes that I saw again and again in the literature. And I was getting really quite depressed uh, by it, thinking, when am I going to see a depiction of somebody who, you know, has their baby? Maybe, you know, getting the latch right could be a bit of a challenge initially, but then they do it and they love breastfeeding their child. It feels great. They love the bond and they want to keep going until sort of natural term weaning. Um, and that is incredibly difficult to find, unfortunately. It's so, I mean, again, going back to that first discussion we had as to why is this important? This is exactly it. If you grow up reading this pre-children, this is what you hear it is. Of course, you're not going to be interested. I mean, why on earth would you give, I mean, I've listened to, I don't know, people tell stories about random encounters with wild animals. I have no desire to go do that. You know, when you hear about being attacked by a bear, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to leave that bear alone. I do not need to go do that. That is, I mean, similarly, we're, we're presenting breastfeeding as something that is so, so bad. But I guess the question then is, do we know beyond this? I mean, we can sit here and speculate that obviously this has a negative effect. Is there anything that has actually linked how the portrayal is with intentions to breastfeed? No, that's a study somebody needs to do. Actually, now that you say that, I feel like that's something for Amy Brown. Um, I feel like that or, you know, some sort of co-study would be great. But no, I have not been able to find anything on that. Instead, it's just, you know, what I have found in the research is, um, Film is generally quite negative about breastfeeding. TV shows are generally quite negative. We know that journalistic articles are often quite negative. The books are negative. And I would imagine that that all does have an impact on somebody. Um, initiation rates of breastfeeding are so low in English-speaking countries. And looking at rates of breastfeeding at six months, obviously even lower than that. And I feel like if we talked about breastfeeding as something, um, you know, often when midwives talk about, it, they do say, oh, good for you, good for your baby. And they kind of leave it there. But we need to talk about how, okay, here's what you do if you struggle. Here's where you go for support. Here are reasons why beyond kind of good for you, good for your baby, that you might actually want to do it. Um, people just don't have that information. Uh, and I find that really worrying. In fact, that, you know, you can read a bunch of novels and see, oh, gosh, you know, a breastfed baby is like a little devil, you know, always, you know, at your breasts and causing you so much pain that you cry. You know, who would want to try it um, after that, really? It, Yeah. And that's, I think, the, you know, when you mentioned the emotional Turmoil. That was the section, like, I know there was the physical pain section that mm. it's depicted as that, but the emotional bit was really difficult for me to hear how negatively it was portrayed, because I will acknowledge there were physical difficulties, there were mm. elements, and there were times it was hard. 
And times emotionally, you're like, I'm done. You know, you all feel that way. But overall, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Like it was such an amazing, the overarching emotional experience for me. And it's not yes. going to be that way for everyone, obviously, but was something of immense value that I will cherish for years to come. So I, I think this is where I get so frustrated by this because I, I think on the flip side, maybe because the media in general is so negative, I think part of the flip side is that half the time we try to glorify it on the, mm. the flip side of it. And it feels like, can't we just hit a, a reasonable discussion of, yep, when your kid clamps down and bites when they get their first tooth, that sucks. Yeah. When you're tired <laughs> and you don't, it sucks. But yeah. overall, it's actually the, the benefits of it, the bonding, the everything actually are immensely valuable. And I think focusing on the emotional aspect, I think is really important. Like I, I that's what disheartened me is I think obviously physically, Yes, there's an important element of the health and we know, you know what I mean, the potential risks of, of formula feeding. But emotionally, we just have kind of forgotten that there is an intense bond that can come mm. from that that is really valuable for all parents, whether you're breastfeeding, chest feeding, whatever is happening, that if it happens for a, a, a dyad or triad, if you've got twins or whatnot, it is, it's really valuable. It is, but I think that that, bond is scary for some people actually. Um, off, so what I found in the literature is that that bond is threatening to the other parent. And I should, again, just emphasize that almost all the depictions were of a husband and wife or you know, a man and a woman, we'll say a heterosexual relationship. And in so many cases, the man found that bond threatening and so there were these depictions of breastfeeding as some sort of impediment to his relationship, either with his female spouse, partner, or with the baby. And so you would see, oh, you know, the man wants to have sex when the woman doesn't want to because she's touched out. Or the man wants time with the baby, but he feels he can't because the woman is breastfeeding again. And so that was a regular theme, a really common theme that I found in these books. Um, so I think that some part of us is aware that that emotional bond is huge and can be so important. And as you said, you know, something that people will cherish. Um, but it was like the sense of, yes, but that leaves men out. And that's what often people are told, isn't it, about formula feeding? Oh, but if you give a bottle, then he can help out. And then it's so lovely to feed a baby and, you know, just let him do it so that he can build that relationship. And, you know, what I tell people I'm working with, whether I'm their doula or their lactation consultant, is that there are lots of ways to have a bond with a baby. And also, you know, breastfeeding, chest feeding doesn't last forever. So, you know, he can certainly you know, give a spoonful of, you know, soup or help that baby with a carrot stick later when that baby is eating solids, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, at that, in those first months, you know, giving, giving something else. But, but yeah, I think it's the sense that that bond is just so threatening. Uh, we it's, can't have it. Yeah, I was saying, uh, that's exactly one of the things that came up when I did a, a breastfeeding, it came with my prenatal class, came with a breastfeeding class. And it was that was one of the biggest concerns coming up was, well, I want to bond with my baby. And I remember the LC there at the time, the lactation consultant said the same thing as well, you know, 
your child is going to eat solids for a heck of a lot longer <laughs> of their life than they're going to yeah. breastfeed. So why don't you take over all of that feeding? If that's yeah. and it was funny because that logical argument still didn't hit, no. right? It it doesn't, and so it always makes me wonder this underlying kind of sexism and. and fracturing that bond is, mm -hmm. well, if it's about feeding, quote unquote feeding here, mm -hmm. then that answer should be it. Yes. That should not, be, no. but it's not right. It's mm -hmm. not about the feeding. It's about that bond that's there, which is kind of distressing and still highlights no. what kind of sexist society we live in. Totally. I mean, it's feminist to breastfeed, you know, and that's what people are worried about in part is, oh, these women, usually women, doing something that women's bodies are meant for. And why can't men have that too? Why can't they have part of it? And, you know, for me, because I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm married to another woman. And that was one of the questions that we got most often uh, or especially that I got most often is, isn't your wife jealous? Doesn't she want to feed the babies? Why are you keeping that from her? Because as a woman, you know, as the mother to those children, why doesn't she get a chance to feed? And, I, you know, and I talked to my wife about it a lot and she never felt, oh, I'm so jealous because, you know, BJ is feeding the babies. It was, oh, well, this is brilliant because she's feeding the babies. Okay. Oh, I've changed, you know, the baby's nappy diaper. Oh, I'm going to, you know, give the baby a bath and you know i'm getting cuddle time you know it's not like she wasn't doing anything she had a lot of time with the baby and continues to have a lot of time with her children and has a very different relationship with them than i do because we're different people do different things with them you know for example they know that if they want to do a craft activity they don't go to me i will not do a craft activity they go to her and so you know you can always develop those different kind of skills and the different kind of directions for your relationship. But I think that there is something in our society about taking things from women, taking our power away. And our bodies are very powerful and they're trying to medicalize our bodies, like, you know, give birth in a hospital, lying on your back with somebody, you know, pulling the baby out with forceps and telling you when to push or whatever. And also, no, we're going to give you this formula made by men usually who are telling you that this is a better way to feed your baby so that a man can participate in the feeding the baby. I do feel like there's a lot of that in this. It, it's, it's wholly depressing, but it it's, is. Um, well, and, and so on that note, because we now know how depressing it is in English, is it depressing in Swedish? <laughs> no, no. Um, so I found, um, I mean, you will find breastfeeding pretty regularly in Swedish language literature. And it, again, just like with the children's literature, it's much more normalized. So you find women, just again, usually women writing about parenting, about becoming mothers and breastfeeding is just part of it. They do not shy away from the difficulties. So you will talk, see women writing oh, you know, my breasts are engorged and, oh, what do I need to do? I need to, you know, maybe I'll express a bit or maybe I'll, you know, get the baby on a bit more or use my toddler to help, you know, move that milk along or, you know, whatever it is. Or, or you know, oh, I'm finding this very difficult or should I give a body? You know, they think about those things and they write about those things in novels, but there's never a sense of, oh, breastfeeding is disgusting or breastfeeding is um, interfering with the relationship with the with the husband, father, you know, the partner and the, and the child, it's much more, um, this is just part of life and it has good sides and it has bad sides. And that's something that I appreciate that we're honest about what it can look like, but we're not wholly negative. What I just kind of dreamed of finding in 
literature. And if anybody knows examples, they can get in touch and tell me, um, you know, an example of somebody who, for example, maybe they're engorged or have mastitis or are suffering from vasospasms or, you know, whatever it is. And they say that to their spouse or to the midwife, the doctor, and they get help with it. And then they are able to continue on. And that is just, you know, one aspect of the breastfeeding situation, the breastfeeding relationship, but it's not the sort of defining feature. Uh, I'd love to see that. I think it's brilliant that Sweden does that in the literature. And I guess that's, you know, it's exactly what we just said. We wish we saw more of in there that it's there, but I love, I hadn't even thought about the questioning of, should I give a bottle? Should I go to a bottle as being part of it? Because that's a brilliant, like when you see that, if you're thinking of it and you read it and you see that presentation, I just think how validating that would be to see mm. it put up there and to know, because I think people feel bad about those thoughts sometimes if they are trying because it feels like quote unquote failure yes. um yeah. which I, and i put in quotes because it's not it, it's a natural response to something difficult is oh my god is there another way uh and that so the fact that they actually address that in there is actually really really interesting um as we but go you know, i mean i wish we would see more of people's honest feelings i mean i guess this is you know something we discuss a lot about in regards to for example social media you know people are very quick to post these you know pictures of their families and all dressed in matching and immaculate clothing and we're on the beach and this is our wonderful perfect life but actually a lot of us are struggling in different ways whether it's with breastfeeding whether it's with mental health whether it's with you know a child you know who's got a disability and that's taking a toll on the family or you know whatever it is we all have struggles in our lives and if we would just talk about them honestly whether it's on social media whether it's in films tv programs or whether it's you know in literature and we can see i'm not alone and that's our problem in life is that we feel so alone with these issues um, and it's really helpful when people are honest and can talk about these things that's why i like um, reading novels you know so i can live another life sometimes but also it's so that i can see i'm not the only one who's felt this way and that makes you feel so comforted and it gives you some insight into possibilities for you in the future Absolutely. That is, yeah, that's the whole point, right? It's partially kind of encompassing another world to kind of learn from it, right? You think about those mirror neurons in your brain that are activated when we see other people doing stuff or hear about other people doing stuff. You're actually giving your brain a training lesson mm -hmm. on how to handle these situations. So it's it's hugely important, even from a biological, neurological perspective here as we go. Yes. So you brought up feminism before. And I want to talk about the role of feminism in the portrayal of breastfeeding in the literature. Because as you said, it's a feminist act to breastfeed. But also, as you discuss early on, some of the push away from breastfeeding came from the feminist movement. Yeah. So we kind of have different feminist beliefs that lead to either the support of breastfeeding or the renunciation of breastfeeding, we say. So how does this play into the literature and how do we reconcile you know, what type of feminism is really more prevalent in our society with this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I would definitely define myself as a feminist. And to me, that means that, well, it means lots of things, but one thing is that we have choices. And so, you know, when I'm supporting people as a doula, lactation consultant, 
If somebody tells me that they want a combi feed or formula feed, I support them with that. That is their choice. What I want in our society is for us to kind of challenge the information we're given, the perceptions we're given, the stereotypes we're given, and think, you know, is this actually what I really want? Or do I only think I want it because I've been told that's the best thing? So, you know, especially like a second wave feminist were saying things like, oh, you know, why would you breastfeed? You're, you're tied down to a baby then or attached to a pump, you know, so you're literally kind of tied down to a table or, you know, why would you want to stay home on maternity leave? Get back to work. And I can completely understand where they were coming from because why they were coming from a place of women being stuck at home when they wanted to get an education, wanted to get out in the world, wanted to work. And they were saying, we shouldn't do that. But the problem in part is that we've gone sort of too far and now it's okay. You've had a baby, but you need to get your life back to exactly how it was right before you had that baby. So back to your job, back to your body, to how it looked, you know, pretend you're not leaking from all sorts of, you know, places, pretend that you, you know, don't have this kind of weird gloopy stomach, um, you know, from having given birth, pretend that all is normal, that you feel fine, that you're not having hormones raging all over the place. Um, and so there, there's this kind of encouragement of women, okay, if you want to be a real woman in today's era, fine, have your children, don't stay home with your children, don't, you know, take a long maternity leave, don't breastfeed, you know, all those things. And we need to kind of get back to an equilibrium where it's, you know, if you would like to have a maternity leave, we support you with that. If you would like to get back to work, we will support you with that. And, you know, whatever people's choice, if you want to breastfeed, we can give you support with that. But we're too far kind of in one direction now where, you know, medical professionals will kind of nod to it and say, well, breastfeeding is best for the baby. But we're not going to give you any help with that. And yeah. we really think that you should, you know, get back to work as quickly as possible. Yeah. The but that goes yeah, into everything, always right? The but, it's, always. And I will say, I mean, I, I've said this elsewhere and I'm, I'm just going to repeat myself again, but I just find that that type of feminism is still not true feminism because it's still playing into that patriarchal culture. What does mm. a... a what does a patriarchal culture value work and productivity yes. and money? And you're just, you might have some female empowerment. We have education, et cetera, but it's still playing by someone else's rules and okay. they're dictating, you know, what we do, which is a huge problem. So I do question when we say, do you want to get back to work right away? Well, do you want to, hmm. or do you think that's the only way to define success yes. for you in that? And that is such a big question, but I do feel like as we read it in the literature, that's, you know, if that is what people are are doing and we're not exploring again, going back to your, your brilliant discussion of the emotional implications of that mm -hmm. is, you know, we need to see what that is. What are the emotional implications of the, the battle to get back to who you are and why and, and jumping in. And I always think back to an episode of um, last week tonight with John Oliver mm -hmm on maternity leave in the US. And I mean, when he, there are some of these interviews with women who are back at work, you know, five days later, because they had to, this was not a choice. And it's heart wrenching to it see is, yeah. what they're coping with. And 
I think about myself five days post birth. <laughs> I was not even. I couldn't possible. even walk down the stairs. Right, I don't exactly. You know, you just think no. the expectations here are there. So, it's, I mean, the U.S. is particularly egregious in terms of uh, support for for families, and especially for you know people who've just given birth and their children, you know, we, we, the United States is very good at saying, oh, families first. And we, you know, we care, you know, pro-life, pro-life. Well, really, if you were pro-life, you would support people in different choices and you would support people to um, stay at home, recover after birth, get that breastfeeding relationship going, you know, staying home with their children. Um, but what we value exactly, as you said, is work and money. And I remember um, when I was pregnant with my first child, I really bought into that. And someone said to me, well, how long are you going to stay off mater you know, for maternity leave? And I said, oh, well, a couple of weeks. Uh, sorry, I said a couple of months because I said, and I remember saying this, you know, who am I without my work? I gave birth to that baby and I thought, wow, do I want to go back to work ever? You know, I just, that is the most wonderful thing. And I ended up, um, I was really lucky because I ended up staying home for 14 months with her and, and it was horrible going back after that, but then I really did have no, no choice. Um, but people just don't understand that you, you know, how you feel before you've had a baby. It's not the same as how you, not necessarily the same as how you might feel once you've given birth to the baby and the things that you think you value are not necessarily things that you're going to value and you need to allow yourself to feel all those feelings and to kind of work through in your head actually what do I want and need to do here maybe financially I have to go back to work or maybe um, you know my society is pushing me to go back to work I'm not being supported maybe there are no possibilities for parental leave but you do have to think for yourself what do I really feel like what is really important to me it's why I wish we had that system that I know, I don't know if Sweden has it too. I know Finland does uh, for the first, whatever, two, three years. If someone wants to stay home, they get a stipend to stay home. If yes. you put your child in some of their excellent cares that they have there, because they really prioritize high quality care for children, um, that's covered partially as well. Yeah. So it's- and it should be. Yeah. And so, you know, they really do offer up that flexibility, plus always having parental leave, which can be split equally amongst two parents, however they decide to do that. I mean, it's just, a, it's such a more sane element. Um, now, I know with time, do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. Because yeah. the one other thing that came up that you, you talked about in this, and I think it's really important, particularly in the English speaking language, is the lack of diversity in the presentation of breastfeeding. So can you tell us what, you know, how lacking was it? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Um, and, and what do you think it, how do you think that reflects in or, or leads to the, the breastfeeding rates that we see differences in across different cultures within English speaking countries? Yes. So we've sort of hinted at it because um, as you've heard from the language I'm using, you know, I'm often talking about women, mothers, their husbands, and that is very much what I found in both picture books and books for uh, young adults and adults. Um, it was very much heterosexual or at least heterosexual appearing um, families. And also, you know, when we're gonna talk about diversity, they almost all appeared to be middle-class uh, almost always white, almost always, you know, able-bodied, um, you know, you just, the reality of our society was not depicted. I sometimes got the impression, especially in picture books, was that 
it was like some editor had gone, oh, um, okay, we're already talking about breastfeeding. We can't possibly talking about talk about some other weird or taboo subject. We could we couldn't feature a non-white family. Um, and when you look at the statistics for our societies, our societies are not predominantly white, Christian, able-bodied, middle class. You know, that's just not reality. And my view of literature is that it always needs to reflect the society that we're living in. Um, and it's so worrying that these books are almost saying, okay, well, if you're gonna have some breastfeeding, it's for white people. So can you imagine if you were not white and that's what you saw in literature, you would really get the impression that breastfeeding is not for people like us. And that's, you know, um, for example, here in the UK, there's Black Breastfeeding Week. And that is absolutely brilliant because that is there to support um, black people and breastfeeding, but I wish it weren't needed I wish it was that we automatically gave support to all groups. Um, you know, I've seen some in, in very recent times, I've seen some fascinating articles and webinars on, for example, um, Muslim people and breastfeeding or um, people who are on the autistic spectrum and breastfeeding. Um, I myself wrote an article actually about uh, Jews and breastfeeding because the aim there is to kind of educate people about, well, actually what does breastfeeding look like for these different groups or for these different cultures? You know, I've, we talked about LGBTQ parenting last time and I've written kind of extensively about breastfeeding and chest feeding for, uh, for queer people. And I feel that we need much more of that generally in society but also in literature, it's back to that. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And you might feel that that's not something for me and I wouldn't know where to turn. You know, if you don't see somebody who is um, in a wheelchair and breastfeeding, you might think, oh, well, I just can't do that. It's just not for me. I wouldn't even know where to go to get support. And that's a real issue. It's funny you mentioned, because you just segued me to my last question here, which is tied into this question here, but you said you feel it's important that literature reflect society. So I'm going to ask, does society have to then change first for the, I mean, it has kind of changed. We're not accurately reflecting, but can authors be the impetus to change? Can they reflect the world we should have the society that should be supported and society will follow? I think they're trying. Um, I've talked to authors and also read in articles and academic research examples of authors who, you know, maybe they featured a queer love story or, you know, somebody who was not white or whatever. And they were actually told by their editor or publisher, you need to change that or we can't publish it. And so clearly, you know, there are authors who are trying we have to think about who traditionally has been able to get published. And of course, you know, if you look at, I, I want to put this in your own know, quote marks, the, the canon, you know, it's a certain group of people, usually men, usually, you know, white European men, um, Christian, middle class, all of that again, or upper class even. Um, that's the kind of work that we have prioritized in our society. That's what we've said is important we've not thought other people's stories are important and we really need to see that change. The authors, obviously everybody should write their own stories. Anybody who's listening, who feels a call to write stories that represent their own lives, please do that and submit it to agents and submit it to editors, but it is a hard slog. And I think, so therefore some of the impetus needs to come from readers. We need to also write articles or even write letters to publishers and say, you know, I was looking for a book that featured 
somebody from say a native background and da 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 you know and I, I feel like that's missing do you have anything in your catalog like that um you know because that sends a message to publishers who understandably are thinking about their bottom lines um and if they know that there's interest out there they might start to try to change what they're accepting i mean some of the swedish books that i mentioned um in my book uh, I actually went to um, literary agents and publishers here in the UK and I said, I'm a translator, you know, there's this brilliant author. In this case, I was talking about Christina Sandby, whose work I talked about here. She really needs to be published in English. Her work has been translated to Dutch and Spanish and da 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 da. And they would say, okay, can you send me a synopsis and some samples? So I did that. And the response was always, well, that that's women's stories. We don't need women's more women's stories. And some of them even said chiclet, which is an offensive term that we won't go into in any great depth. And so I feel like there's a belief that we're not interested in these stories. We're not interested in hearing about women talk about becoming mothers. We're not interested in native stories or queer stories, non-white stories or whatever. And that's simply not true. We are interested. Publishers are kind of underestimating us. And so as readers, we need to show them that they are underestimating us and we need those books. I am going to say, I don't even think it's that they're at their bottom line. I think they're scared of mm. going outside the box. I think it, it challenges their level of comfort as to what they are comfortable sharing in the world. Because to say there's not an audience for it is just... I mean, you can't be that, well, maybe you can be that successful and that dumb at the same time. I mean, I really, I can think of a few other examples in my mind right now, but um, <laughs> that is, you know, it just feels like you run a successful business, you know, there's an audience, you know, yes. you can reach that. But I think when you're challenging the status quo, there's kind of a, whoa, 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 we don't want to challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. I want to be successful in what I'm comfortable with. And be safe, yeah. But that's why, I mean, I one of the big changes to literature that I've seen in the past few years in particular is self-publishing. I mean, self-publishing has always been around, but there's been a huge advance in it partially because of, you know, uh, different methods such as Amazon or wherever where people can just publish their own work. And in some ways that's great. And also fan fiction, I should mention, both those things great in their own way. The problem with many of the ones that I reviewed um, that are self-published, that they often are really lacking editing or the pictures of a very low quality. So especially with children's books, you know, they might use clip art or they might use somebody who's not really an artist to just do some kind of simple stick figures. And that's not uh, what I would term, you know, high quality literature that I'd want to share with a classroom of students. So we need some kind of move from you know self-published stuff to maybe the editors at established publishing houses taking a look at this work saying you know it does need a bit of editing but we can do something with it and we're going to give it a chance i would love to see that happening i would love to see it too it feels like that's kind of where we need to go but it, it's heartening to hear that authors are looking to be the change because i i, I do believe that as much as they reflect society i think they can drive society as well mm. as, as we go. So I cannot thank you enough. This is amazing. Um, this work is so important. And a reminder, we're talking about the book. It's called The Portrayal of Breastfeeding in Literature. 
and it is completely worth the read if you are at well, all interested. It, it, it's infuriating sometimes, as <laughs> you've already gathered from listening to this. <laughs> but it's heartening when you get to the Swedish bit. It's actually heartening, right? So you, mm. you get both sides here. It's just, why can't I have that is yeah. where you kind of land on it. But it's certainly an important topic. And you know, if you are, as BJ said, if you have a story you want to tell, start telling it. I, I have ideas myself here on maybe trying to get some people to share some stories on EP. I will have to start navigating that one. But um, I can't thank you enough again for being here. It is, as always, absolutely lovely to chat with you. Oh, thank um, you, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I, we, I feel we could talk for hours. We could, I think, on all of this <laughs> and get very worked up and angry over half of it, too. So... <laughs> But um, I, I thank you so much. If you're interested more, obviously, in the show notes, there'll be links to all the books. Do go back. If you didn't hear our first chat on LGBTQ plus parenting, go give that one a listen. And again, thank you, BJ, for being here. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. If you are struggling with breastfeeding, please reach out to a local IBCLC. Although our culture may not be supportive, they certainly will be. And the more we can all normalize breastfeeding, the better. Until next time, stay safe and happy parenting.